Again, it's so good to have every one of you here today. Before I get into the sermon this morning, I would like to take a moment to recognize any of our men or women who are either veterans or you are presently serving in our armed forces. If you are here this morning and you're in those categories, if you would stand to your feet and we want to recognize you and thank you. We got to exercise a wonderful privilege that I think a lot of times we as American citizens take for granted this past week. We had the privilege and opportunity to go and vote. And uh, I thank you for your service to this country that continues to afford us that opportunity each and every year. We don't take that for granted. And I don't take that lightly. So we just wanted to say how much we love you and appreciate you. We are still in our series, Dangerous Church. We're looking at some biblical principles that Jesus laid forth as it relates to leadership. And uh, Pastor Jared came up here last week. Didn't he do a good job last week? Didn't Jared do great? I asked him last night, I said, what can you not do? He stands up here, man, and he's, he plays that guitar and sings, and just such a blessing, such a great leader to our youth. And I thank our band and, and everything that they do, our choir. We're just very, very blessed here at uh, Whitley and at the bridge. And um, I, Well, let's, get it, let's do a little background, and then we'll get to motivation, and we'll talk a little bit about what Jared mentioned last week. But uh, in the first two sermons that we heard from Pastor... He talked about identification. He talked about the importance, and we see that on our door here this morning. Identification, we, uh, it says, I must know who I am. Jesus told us very clearly who he was in Scripture. And uh, then secondly, he said, there must be clarification. I must know what I want to accomplish. Jesus laid that out very, very clearly. He, he knew what he had come to this earth to accomplish. And we must know as leaders, as we walk in leadership, what we are here to accomplish. Clarification. And then last uh, week we heard about motivation. I must know who I'm trying to please. Who am I trying to please? And I told uh, Pastor Jared that I'll never pull into Taco Bell again without thinking about Daniel 3. Because he was talking about how they were wrapped up like burritos and went into the fiery furnace. And so every time I get hungry for Taco Bell, I, I'd go to Daniel 3 and just read it. So that's a good connection there. But um, we learned about uh, knowing who we're trying to please. And that is so unbelievably important. Because we live in a world where we're constantly uh, looking across the street at the Joneses and trying to figure out what they got and why they got it and why don't I have it and who's got what and this, that, and other. And so, uh, but that brings us to our fourth principle this morning, and that is the principle of collaboration. Collaboration. I must know how to work with a team. Collaborating, we got to know how to work with a team. Leadership never takes place by itself. It's always in the context of a team. To be a leader, you have to build a team. All great leaders are team builders. So if you don't have a team, you're not a leader, you're a loner. 
We don't want to be that here at Whitley. We want to, we want to lead. And, and you've heard Pastor share this before, and I'll share it again. Uh, he shares this proverb. It goes something like this. He who thinketh that he leadeth, but hath no one following him, is only taking a walk. Okay? So if you think you're leading, but nobody's following... You're only taking a walk. This is why we stress small groups so much here at Whitley and at the bridge. is because we know that we're better together. You know, one person can't see everything. When we work together, we, we collaborate. We bring a team of people around us. And then we are, are much better at seeing the entire picture. You're going to see things I don't see. I'm going to see things you don't see because of our experience, okay? We need each other. We compensate for one another's weaknesses. And um, I was telling them last night, my wife is, is wonderful because she does that for me. She is so awesome at compensating for my weaknesses. I eat because she compensates for my weaknesses. <laughs> I, I'm not a cook, and I thank the Lord that she is. Teams are far more effective than any individual now. And, and you know, children learn this at a very young age. And when I came to Whitley, I was, I was just barely a man. <laughs> and um, and I, I had a party one time with, with the, the youth group, and we decided that we would do some team building. I thought, hey, Jesus gave us this great example about building a team. I really didn't say this, but we... Um, we decided that as a team, we could roll somebody's yard much better than by ourselves. Um, if you don't know what that is, that's toilet papering a yard. And so we devised this plan of going and singing Christmas carols to Pastor Farrell's brother. While half of us did that, the other half were in the backyard prettying it up for Christmas, you know, getting it nice and lovely and but we don't want to follow my example this morning in teaching our teenagers how to mess somebody's trees up. We want to follow the model that Jesus gave us, right? Jesus gave us a model in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, He, Jesus, appointed 12, the, the, the disciples, designating them as apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Jesus gave us an example here. And let's look at this passage and see what he did to pick this team. How he picked the team. The first thing we see and the first example and principle for us is God chose the team. Everybody knows that Jesus was God, right? Deity. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. Alright? But he chose the team. So when we think about, when we consider Picking a leadership team. I'm not talking about picking a kickball team or going out and picking a scrub football team. I'm talking about picking leadership teams in the church. And when we talk about picking teams, we begin by asking God. You know, really, truthfully, there's nothing in your life you shouldn't begin that way. Everything in your life should begin with, God, what do you think about this? And how do we find that answer? We get into the Word of God. We find out what God's Word has to say about that particular thing. So we see that God chose the team. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you think He chose 12? Why, why didn't God choose 50 or 
a hundred or two hundred. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, examples and speculation that we can give out there. One of the one of the scholars that I read said that uh, he chose twelve because there were twelve tribes of Israel, and this showed continuity between the old religious system and the new one based on Jesus' message. It it, it gave continuity there. Uh, maybe gave him some credibility in the day that he lived in, in choosing the twelve. But there's one even more simplistic than that. He probably chose twelve because twelve's just easier to work with than fifty is, isn't it? Isn't it easier to mentor twelve than it is fifty or a hundred or two hundred? If I gave you the task this morning and said, I want you to, I want you to, Pick 50 people that are sitting here in the worship auditorium. And I want you guys to just do life together. I want you to build a team. And I want you to make a difference for this world. And you could do it. You could build a team. But do you know what would happen? After about two weeks of gathering together and meeting and praying and coming up with the plan that God had given you. Do you know what would happen to that number? It would diminish, wouldn't it? It does it naturally. And here's why. Because we can only pour ourselves into so many people. Pastor preached a series of sermons just recently on this. Do you remember the name of the series? I won't ask you to say it out loud. But it was Growing Smaller. You remember that? We want to grow smaller. Because as we grow smaller, we're able to pour ourselves into a certain group of people. And then they in turn can pour themselves into other people and so on and so forth. And before you know it, what's happened? 900 people. That's how many people we had here last week or last weekend. Isn't that remarkable? Nine, almost, it was, it was, actually, it was almost 1,000. It was 981 people that we had at the bridge and at this campus here at Whitley last weekend. And the only way for us to stay connected, the only way for us to continue to move forward and keep in focus the vision and the dream that God's given us is to grow smaller, is to connect with those few people. And so that's, that, again, that's why we are stressing small groups because we want you to be connected. We want you to, to get connected in a group. And that's why we do say the smaller the group, the better that it'll function. Not because we know everything, but because guess what? Jesus does know everything. And in Mark 3, he chose 12. Why would I do something different than he does? Why would I come up with a plan and say, well, that one's better than the one Jesus came up with? I think he knows what he's doing. And so we want to follow the biblical example and grow smaller. You know, Paul did the same thing. When we look at Paul in, in Scripture, when you look at the book of Acts and you see how Paul ministered, he ministered with the same seven men his, through his ministry. His first missionary journey, Paul was with Barnabas and John Mark. The second missionary journey, he was with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And in his third missionary journey, the major journey, he was with Timothy and Erastus. And so there were seven men over the course of those missionary journeys that he traveled with. And there's an interesting thing that, that we, we see here 
these seven guys traveled with Paul. They were a small group. They were, they were connected and they were making a difference in the world that they lived in. But do you know an interesting thing about this group of men? They didn't always get along. They didn't always agree. They didn't always 100% see eye to eye. Because before the end of the first missionary journey of Paul in Acts chapter 13... Um, John Mark goes back home. And there's all kind there's many different types of speculation as to why he did that. Some say he, he may have taken ill, may have been homesick. There are various reasons. But the bottom line was he went home. He left during the journey. And guess who didn't like that? Paul. Paul didn't like it. So when it came time for the second journey, he looked at Barnabas because Barnabas had said, well, you know, John Mark, we're going to bring him back with us. And Paul said, no, I don't think so. I, I, don't, I don't want him to go on this journey with me. Because he left in the, before the first one was over. You know what Barnabas said? Well, I think he needs to go on one. So if, you're gonna, if you want to do that, then you go your way and, and, and we'll go here. We'll go on a journey. And, and, and Paul and Silas, and that was when they were imprisoned and... And uh, God showed up in a remarkable way and they were able to lead that jailer to the Lord and then they were soon released and, and all that happened because of all those events. But here's what I want to point out. They disagreed. They agreed to disagree. But you know what they never did? They never took their eyes off the main thing. They never did. They didn't say, well, he doesn't agree with me. Paul don't like me. I'm going to... Yeah. They didn't do it. They always kept their eyes on the main thing. And, and you know, John Mark, he was like, dog, man, I didn't mean to offend Paul. And, but he went on and he kept working. He didn't say, well, Paul's mad at me, so I'm not going to serve Jesus anymore. I'm not going to tell anybody about him anymore. I'm going to go, you know, and, and I know I'm exaggerating this, but a lot of times, you know, we have seen in church, people do this. And they get upset and they're like, well, I'm just going to close myself off and I'm just not going to... And then, and then churches get started call, being called organizations and, and whatever else, you know, because somebody's mad about this, that, or the other. we got to keep our fix and our focus on the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. You know what happened? Again, we look to Scripture. We look to our biblical example. And we see what God did through the lives of these great men. And you know what he did? Because John Mark said, you know what? I'm gonna... God's... God made two teams here. And sent two evangelical teams out. And in the book of Colossians, we see that Paul and John Mark actually get back together. And they do some more work in ministry later on in Paul's ministry. Okay? So you can agree to disagree. I think sometimes in church we think, well, you know, uh, here's, a, here's another example of something that, that happens, especially as a church is growing larger. You may have an idea. You may have a plan. You may have a, 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 a something that you bring to the senior pastor. You know the senior pastor uh, he's in a way hotter seat than I'm in. I am the pastor of assimilation here at Whitley Church. And no, I don't know what that means either. But anyway, that's, that's what I am. So I just tell people that. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, they kind of look at me like you just did. 
Okay, he gets paid for that, whatever. <laughs> you know? But he, he's in a tough spot because as the senior pastor of this church, he's, he's got to bathe everything in prayer. And as the team is built, he's got to look at everything and consider everything. And there may be times, guess what, in 13 years, there have been times that I've brought ideas to the senior pastor. And maybe it wasn't the right time. It wasn't that it was a bad idea. It wasn't that it was a wicked, vile thing. Maybe it just wasn't the right time. Maybe, you know, we just needed to wait or just tweak it a little bit or do it a little bit different. But we got to be fluid and we got to be willing to, to work with one another and give one another. I love uh, this word. I, I, I first heard Rick Warren use it. But we've got to be willing to give each other margin, you know, the little area on the side of a term paper that you have and Every professor likes a different amount of margin there so he can write more red than maybe the next guy. But, um, but we got to give each other margin. And we got to allow for, for, for growth and, and expansion. And, and so I, I, just, I just think it's real important that we understand that and, and we know that that's okay. And then, you know, we see that Jesus did this. He was a team builder. Paul did this. we got to do this. I look, at, I look at a modern day um, saint of the church. He's a great man. He's, he's just a, a Billy Graham, 90 years old, Friday. Just a remarkable life. A remarkable life. He's done a tremendous amount to advance the kingdom of God. And he has had the same five or six people serve with him over the last 62 years. Let me say that again. He's had five or six people, the same five or six, serving with him over the last 62 years. I think Pastor Graham got it. <laughs> you know, when you work with somebody that long, you can, you can read each other's mind just about it. You're very comfortable with one another. It's like that old shoe, you know. You can put it on. You really don't have to work the shoelaces much anymore because it sort of knows how your foot sits in it, you know. And you can just tie it up and everything's good. Well, when we work together like that, man, God can do so much. So what is the dream God's given you? What is that passion? What is that vision? And how do we affect change in the world? I, I talked to a, a couple, well, it was actually a family last night at the bridge, and, and they came to church. And there may be some people that are sitting in the worship auditorium today who came to Whitley because you went to the website and you saw um, our worship style, you saw some of the videos maybe or whatever. This is what this gentleman said to me. He said, we saw your website and we, we kind of saw what you were doing and said, you know what, God's given me the same passion and the same vision and and, and I like doing church like that. Now, does that mean that the church across town that doesn't do church like this is wrong? No. My mom and dad have come to Whitley a few times since I've been here. I grew up Southern Baptist. My dad sits in this worship auditorium, and he listens to the music, and he claps off beat because he don't hardly know how to respond to a drum being on the stage, you know, and when we leave and go to lunch, and he's always so nice, and he's always so complimentary, and, he, and, he, and he's excited about what's going on here, but is it his thing? Eh. <laughs> you know, he's like, that was, that was good, son. Sandy, when are we going back to Martin, Georgia? We got to get on back to Martin. 
They're not wrong. Just different. Different personality. But the, but the vision and the dream that God's given us as a local church and the way, the method that we use to do church, not the message changing, not compromising the word of God. It is inerrant and infallible. We cannot do that. But the method, sure, it's different. But when we look at that and we, and we see what that is, then we buy in and, and we say, God, you've given this church, this local church, an idea, a God idea. They've been praying about what you want them to do. And they're also praying about building a team. And I'm praying about being a part of a team. I pray that that's you this morning. I pray that you're on your knees saying, God, how can I be a part of a team that's going to make some changes in the world that we live in? Here's what happens. You begin to pray, and God just begins to bring all of us folks together and begin to work, begin to work together. And, it, and it's really, it's effortless. You know, when you begin to pray and you say, God, help me build a team. I want to build a team of leaders because you've given me a passion and a vision to do this very thing. You don't say, well, okay, I need to build a team. Let me say, where's my, where's my team at? And we just, we come running over here. We're going to get us, we're going to get us a team. We're just going to grab somebody up and say, hey, give me a team. You know, I need, I need this one and I need that one back there. And the camera guys are going crazy right now because I have run off the stage. Guys, you don't want to build a team that will get a restraining order put on you, okay? <laughs> Can't be running up to people that you don't even know and saying, okay, I need you on my team and I need this one on my team. You pray and say, God, you've given us a vision and a passion and a dream. Lord, you build the team. You put the people, you put the people around us that, that need to be around us so that we can make the biggest impact on the world that we possibly can. Because guys, listen this morning. We're not talking about building a team just so we can sit back on Monday morning at our job and say, we have teams at Whitley Church. <laughs> Do you have teams? That's not why we're building teams. You know why we want to build teams? Because we want to be effective in the direction that we're moving in as a church. Because Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And we need to tell the world that He's coming and that He loves them. And that He wants to have a relationship with them. We're not gaining any more time. The last time I looked, I'm only getting older. I did go to buy my deer license the other day and the lady thought that I was born in 1985 and I almost uh, kissed her on the hand. I said, God bless you that you think I'm 23. <laughs> she probably really didn't. She probably saw it and said, mm, that's the mistake there. But Guys, we want to build a team because Jesus is coming back. And we want the world to know. And we want this team to be effective. And we want this team to move forward. And what do we want this team to do? We want this team to scream from the rooftops, Jesus loves you. He is here to heal you. He is here to deliver you. He is here to set you free. He is here to make your family greater than it could ever be. The relationship with your wife or husband greater than it could ever be. The relationship you have with your children greater than it could ever be. We know the potential that you have in God. And 
we want to build teams that move people in that direction. There are a lot of ministries here at Whitley Church. There's over 20 that are active and, and effective and moving. And, and we've got some of them. Actually, we have two of our ministry teams that are, that are out of town this morning. But you know what? All those teams are working for one purpose and one goal. We're all a team. We're all working together. I encourage you, if you're not a part of one of those teams here at Whitley Church, begin to pray about where God could use you. Let me ask you a question. When we talk about the concept of team and we talk about the concept of collaborating, why is it that we stay so closed up to ourselves? Why is it that when we lead something, we hold on to it so tightly? And we're so, we, we have a tendency to be reluctant to let people in and let people lead as well. Maybe, maybe even work ourselves out of a job. You know, I'm, I'm in the business of working myself out of jobs here at Whitley Church. If I'm an effective leader, I'm going to work myself out of jobs. And then, you know, I mean, we see it this weekend. We've seen it over the last two weekends. Pastor Farrell, a much needed, much earned time away. We've kept right on trucking. You know why? Because he's built a team. He's built a team. And it's not just me and Pastor Jared and Pastor Jimmy and Jim Gilligan and the board. It's you guys. This thing doesn't happen without everybody being involved. So, but the reason that we're so reluctant sometimes to let other people step in and, and be a part of that and maybe even say, you know what? Recognize every once in a while, that guy or that gal's actually better at this than I am. They need to lead it. Take the lead. Take those reins. Take charge. But we don't do that sometimes because of insecurity and because of pride. We don't want anybody to know that somebody might be better than me at something. I don't want them to know that they might be bigger or stronger or more effective. Maybe a little more creative. You know, you need to remember what your mama always told you when you were a little boy or a little girl growing up. There's always somebody out there a little bit bigger and a little bit badder, a little bit tougher, so don't get too big for your britches. That's what my mom always said. Just walk humbly before God. And remember that you came into this world with absolutely nothing. Everything I got is because of Him. So if He gives me something, I'm going to work with it, but I'm going to work with hands outstretched and open. And say, God, you use me and do in me whatever you want to do. But then if you've got somebody that you're going to bring into the mix, maybe to lead, to a, lead us to a different level, I'm good with that. I don't hold on to anything. I encourage you to do that. Don't let insecurity and pride get in the way of the dream being fulfilled. Here's the bottom line, guys. When it comes to collaboration, we all need a battle buddy. We need a battle buddy. We've talked about small groups and, and why that's important. The reason that's important, the reason small groups are important is because we need somebody that we can connect with spiritually that will be there for us. 
when life gets tough. How many of you know that life from time to time is a battle? <laughs> if you don't know that, um, come see me after church. We need to talk about the la-la land that you live in. <laughs> because sometimes it is. And it's important to be able to face that and to properly respond to that. Stu Weber is a pastor in Oregon. He's also a Green Beret. And he said every soldier needs one of these. And uh, he was asked by the head of Delta Force, what kind of person would you like as a battle buddy? You know what he said? He said, somebody who's strong enough to carry me off the field when I get hurt. That's who I want as a battle buddy. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have somebody that's strong enough to carry you off the field when you get hurt emotionally or physically? More importantly, are you that person to somebody else in this journey? Is there anybody who can depend on you? Or is it all about you? Remember, we started reading this book at the beginning of the year. It's not about me. It's November Let's get a little reminder. It's not about us. Let's pour our lives into somebody else. Are you a battle buddy to somebody else? Are you that person that someone can depend on? And I've said this time and time again. You know when you become that for someone else? Guess what happens to your problems? They diminish. They get smaller and smaller. You need a spiritual friend, somebody who will call and, uh, and somebody who you can call and say, you know, how you doing? How's things going today? Maybe you have a friend that has a terminal illness and you know that they're sick and you know that they're not doing well. But just to call and say today, not, not the big picture, but today, right now, emotionally, spiritually, how are you doing today? We need to be that for one another. Even Jesus needed that. We look at the example of the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus went into the garden the night he was going to be crucified. and It was a time of agony for him. He was in emotional anguish. His soul was tortured. I can imagine that it would be. He said, I'm about to take, I'm about to take upon myself every rape that was ever committed, every molestation, every murder, every jealousy, every rejection, every disloyalty. I'm going to take every sin, past, present, and future, on my life and take all that guilt on myself. We cannot even comprehend what that must have been like for him. That's why we sing, I'll never know what it costs to see my sin upon that cross. We can't know. We can't understand that. And even though he was God, he was deity, he was all man, and he needed Peter, James, and John. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he looked at them and he said, stay here. And keep watch with me. 
And even though we all know what they did, they went to sleep. And he had to keep coming back and waking them up. But he, he wanted them there. He didn't want them there to give him advice. He didn't, he didn't want them there to, to encourage him on, all right, you know, you got to do He just needed, he needed them there. They call it the ministry of presence. When someone is grieving that you just are there with that person. Loving them and letting them know that you're there just by sitting beside them. Jesus needed it. Who are we to think we don't need that? I want to close this morning by sharing with you Something I've shared here a few years ago, but I, I wanted to share it again. It's a couple of modern day battle buddies that I want us to look at. How many of you have heard of Team Hoyt? Dick and Rick Hoyt? You know, I try to be a good dad. Give my kids some breaks. You know, if you're a golfer in here, I give them mulligans every now and then. You know, let them... Get away with stuff. I, I have two little boys that think that everything that was made by the hands of a man was intended to be broken as quickly as possible. <laughs> as soon as you can get that thing out of the package, let's see what a hammer can do to it. You know what I'm saying? Um, but compared to this man, I really stink. 85 times he's pushed his disabled son 26.2 miles in marathons. Eight times he's not only pushed him 26 miles, but he's also towed him 2.4. He's pedaled him 112 miles in a seat on handlebars, and he's done all this in the same day. He's pulled him cross-country skiing, he's put him on his back and gone mountain climbing, and he's once hauled him across the whole continental United States. Makes taking my son bowling or to the movies seem kind of lame. But Rick's done something for his dad as well. And we'll get into that in just a moment. This love story began in Winchester, Massachusetts 43 years ago when Rick was strangled by his unbiblical cord. Leaving him brain damaged and unable to control his limbs. The doctor said he'll be a vegetable the rest of his life. They said you need to put him in an institution. But the Hoyts wouldn't hear it. They noticed the way that Rick's eyes would follow them around the room. And when Rick was 11, they took him to the engineering department of Tufts University and asked if there was anything that they could do to help the boy communicate. They said, no, there's nothing going on in his brain. And Dick looked at those doctors and he said, tell him a joke. They did. And he laughed. Turned out there was a lot going on in his brain. Rigged up with a computer that allowed him to control the cursor by touching a switch with the side of his head. He was finally able to communicate. His first words were, go Bruins. And after a high school classmate was paralyzed in an accident and the school had organized a charity run, he went to his dad and he said, I want to do that right there. His dad said, yeah, right. I am a self-described porker who never ran more than a mile at a time. 
And I'm going to push my son five miles in a race. Yet he tried. Then Dick says it was he who was handicapped. He said, I was sore for two weeks after we ran that race. But it changed his life. He was obsessed with giving Rick the feeling that it gave him. Because Rick typed one day, he said, Dad, he said, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not disabled anymore. He got in such hard belly shape that Rick and his dad were ready to run the 1979 Boston Marathon. The race officials told him there was no way they could do it because they weren't a single runner, but they also weren't quite a wheelchair competitor. A few years later, or rather for a few years, they just joined the massive field and ran anyway. Then they found a way to join the race officially. In 1983, they ran another marathon so fast that they made qualifying time for Boston the following year. Then somebody said, hey, man, why don't you guys try a triathlon? <laughs> he said, man, how's a guy who's never learned to swim, who hadn't been on a bicycle since he was six years old, going to haul this 110-pound kid through a triathlon? Yet he tried. They've now done 212 triathlons, including four grueling 15-hour Ironmans in Hawaii. Must be a buzzkill to be a 25-year-old stud getting passed by an old guy towing a grown man in a dinghy. What do you think? <laughs> then somebody asked this father, they said, why don't you try doing it on your own? He said, never. He said, it's purely for the awesome feeling that I get seeing that cantaloupe smile on my son's face when we run and swim and ride together. A couple of years ago, at ages 65 and 43, this father-son duo finished their 24th Boston Marathon in 5,083rd place. Pretty good out of a field of 20,000. Their best time was 2 hours and 40 minutes in 1992, and it was only 35 minutes off the world record, which in case you don't keep track of these things, happens to be held by a guy not pushing a man in a wheelchair at the time. No question about it, types Rick. My dad is the father of the century. But Rick has given his father something as well. Just a few years back, he had a mild heart attack during a race. Doctors told him that he had a 95% blockage in one of his arteries. They said, had you not been in such good shape, you would have died 15 years ago. But because of his son, he saved his life. Rick has his own apartment, works in Boston, and his dad's retired from the military. But they always have time to be together. They give speeches around the country and compete in back-breaking races somewhere just about every weekend. At night, Rick always takes his dad out after those races and buys him something to eat. But the thing he really wants to give his father, money can't buy. The thing I'd like most, Rick types, is that my dad sit in the chair and that just once 
I push him.
can only imagine as much as that dad loves his son there is a God who loves you even more and I know that's hard to imagine after you see that but I shared with you just a moment ago that we all need a, a battle buddy. We all need somebody to face the trials of this life with. The beginning of that starts with Jesus. He is the general of the army. He is the master. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you may be here this morning and you may feel weak and helpless and hopeless. But God is more than able. He is more than enough. And He says in, I love what He says in Isaiah. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. And he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. That is the God we serve. And no matter what you face this morning, no matter what the hurt no matter who's disappointed you he's enough he's enough if you've not invited him into your heart and into your life today's your day and it's very simple all you gotta do is say God I need you I've been trying this thing by myself for too long I've been insecure, I've been prideful, I've been afraid to let anybody know that I had any weakness in me. But God, today, I look to you and I say, help me. Help me, God. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for your presence in this place. And we thank you, God, for hearts and lives that have been changed. We're not going to do this thing called life anymore by ourselves. First and foremost, most importantly, we're going to invite you to be a part of our life. And guide us and direct us through it. And then we're going to begin to pray. Send people, Lord, that are going to encourage me. That are going to make me a better Christian because I know them. Send those people in our lives.
If you're here this morning, though, and you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus, it's as simple as this. Saying, Lord Jesus, I come to you. I understand I heard pastor, the pastor talking about Matthew 26. You, you took the sin of the world. You took my sin on. You died for it. Forgive me, Lord, for taking you for granted. Forgive me for never inviting you into my life. Today I acknowledge, God, my weakness, and I invite you in. And I'm going to live for you, God. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me and cleanse me. Renew my strength, God. And be that source of help for me in time of trouble. God, I invite you in. I hide my weakness no more. Today I say yes to Jesus. If you're here today with every head bowed and every eye closed and you prayed that prayer silently along with me for the first time or you made a recommitment to God this very morning, if you would, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just signify by uplifted hand so that we can keep you in our prayers and we can encourage you. God, thank you for the hand that was raised. Thank you for the lives that have been touched. Help us leave this place this morning, God, encouraged, Lord, knowing that our trust and our hope is in you. And because it is, when the going gets tough, you're going to be right there to carry us. Thank you for that, God. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place and the lives that have been changed. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.